0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the lead pastors. It is good to be with you. Today, we will be looking at John 6, verses 16 through 21. So you can go ahead and take out your Bibles. And as we walk through the text today, we are going to be looking at the story where Jesus walks on water, the perhaps overly familiar story of Jesus walking on water. And as you walk out of the doors today, I want just one thing to stick in your mind. Walk away with one thing, and it's this, that the presence of Jesus tramples our fears. The presence of Jesus tramples our fears. Now, as you hear that sentence, there's probably one word that sticks out as a a unique or strange word, and I'm guessing that it's the word trample. The dictionary definition, the simplest one, is to crush under feet. But there is a better definition that I experienced back in 1997, the embodiment of what trampling means. So it was 1997. I thought I was a big deal. I played on the football team. Uh, I thought of myself as probably one of the better players on defense. And uh, pretty much any 30-something-year-old, you know who's telling stories about back when they played football. They're almost guaranteed to be exaggerated. People are always going Uncle Rico, but I actually think I was <laughs> kind of good, and there was evidence for it that my, in that my nickname was Manchild. They called me Manchild. And I was one of the hardest hitters on the team, one of the most aggressive guys, and I had this rival who was in our division. We had known each other since we were kids We were always two of the biggest guys, and we were always going at each other. His name was Jesus. And Jesus and I were gonna face each other for our first time in high school, and I was ready. I was amped up. But the thing was, they called me man child, but this guy, he was a grown man. He was like 280 pounds, he was muscle. I mean, as a 16-year-old, he, he didn't just have a beard, but he had like a beard growing on top of a beard, right? This guy was enormous. This guy was my Goliath. And I knew at that game, I was going to come and I was going to be ready. I was, I was telling all my, all my friends, I said, this is the moment it goes down. This is the moment. For me, this is going to be like my Rocky moment, my Rudy moment, my remember the Titans all into one. I'm going to line up on the field, and I'm going to hit him so hard that all of the scouts in the stands from the various colleges will drop their clipboards and be like, we need that guy. I was ready. As soon as their offense ran onto the field, I ran onto the field first. I beat him to the field. I had my crazy eyes. I was looking at Vincente. I didn't even look anywhere else. We lined up. The ball is snapped. We fire off. And in the first second of contact, I knew I had him. The problem was the second second of contact. (laughs) Because it was all a farce. As the force of his energy, this double-bearded man knocks into me, I found myself flying backwards, seeing stars because of how hard he hit me, and seeing stars because I was literally looking up into the sky. Spit flying out of my mouth, I hit the ground, and the, the force of his hit was so hard that he actually stumbled forward and landed his giant size 15 cleat right into the middle of my chest. I'd been defeated. <laughs> I got to the sideline and I looked and the perfect imprint of his fifth size 15 shoes were sitting there. As I looked down with shame, I knew what the definition of trampled meant. Now, why do I bring up trampled? Why am I going all Uncle Rico on you in this moment telling football stories? It's because when we think of Jesus walking on the water, I think our imaginations are often shaped by the pictures that we see. Pictures like this one. We'll go ahead and throw this. When you see this picture of Jesus, what do you think of? To me, this looks like a hippie doing a little prance on a koi pond and that is not what's happening on this passage. Jesus is not a hippie skipping around a koi pond. But when we read this text today, what we should see is we should see that when he's walking on the water, he's walking with such power and authority that ultimately what he's doing is he is trampling on our fears. So let's go ahead and jump into the text. Go ahead and open your Bibles to John six sixteen. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. So Jesus' and his, or Jesus's disciples, they're, they're getting together for a little boat trip across the sea, the, the, the Sea of Galilee, which was, you know, honestly more like a lake, but they were kind of hyping things up back then, so they called it a sea. And they're going to take a trip. It's an, an enormous lake. They're going to take a trip across. But you should know that this is coming on the back end of Jesus having fed the 5,000. He basically took some little kids' lunchbox, took some fish sandwiches, and fed 5,000 people. Done this great miracle. And now everyone is trying to take him by force and make him the king. And Jesus is going to go away. He's going to go up on the mountain and get some solitude. And He's going to catch up with his disciples later. So when the evening comes, he puts them in a boat and he sends them off uh, to Capernaum, to, to another city. Now, this shouldn't be a big deal for the disciples because they are experienced fishermen. They know how to handle a boat. Uh, the boats in, in those days, uh, they weren't like big cruise ships, but they also weren't like canoes. You could think of it like a, about the size of like a, a van or something like that. And everything is smooth sailing. It's fine. But then there's a twist. In verse 17, it says, it was now dark. And John is emphasizing the darkness of this moment. They're out there in the middle of the night. It says, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. See, they weren't just on any sea. They were on the Sea of Galilee. And the Galilean Sea uh, was known for being below sea level, and because of the geography, it would have these sudden, violent crosswinds that would be like a miniature hurricane that would come out of nowhere, and a storm would take you from peaceful waters in one moment to a violent shaking holding on to your life the next moment. And we also have to understand that in those days, the sea— was a different thing. They perceived it as a different thing. When we think of the sea, we think of like tranquility and peace and vacation and, you know, cruises. But for them, they lived in the day that was like before Finding Nemo, before the Discovery Channel. They didn't know what those crazy creatures were in the water. And they would probably think about the sea in the same way that we think of outer space, that like some people are equipped to handle it, but it's a very deep and dark mysterious place. And so one of those mini hurricanes suddenly hits the waters. And as it starts up, you can imagine the disciples very confident in their abilities to navigate the storm. But then it starts to get bad. You see lightning out in the sky. And you can imagine them clenching their teeth as lightning filled the sky. You can imagine the adrenaline starting to pump through their body. Their heart's starting to race. There butterflies in their stomach. You can imagine on the boat, uh, the chaos that's happening. Maybe Peter's over here barking orders and Matthew's in the corner kind of frozen up. I imagine Philip, he had, he had too many of Jesus's fish sandwiches that day and he was leaning over the side, giving back what Jesus had given to him. But don't think... Of tranquil waters, think of the chaos of what's happening as the full force of those waves begin trampling the disciples. And as each wave intensified, they become more convinced that this would be the last day of their life. And every time they feel the icy spray, they're reminded that the sea that they grew up fishing in might actually become their grave. And as the boat begins to fill with water, their hearts begin to fill with fear because the disciples are about to be trampled by their very fears. But Then something happens in verse 19. It says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, so they're, they're out in the middle of the ocean. It says they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. How do you think they felt? How do you think they felt when they, they were out, out on the boat and between the breaks of the waves, they saw this figure walking towards them on the water? Now, the Sunday school answer is that they felt peace. That's not what the text says. It says that they felt frightened, terrified. Why? Because people don't walk on water. We're over-familiar over familiar with this text. It would freak you out. And in the Matthew account of this passage, it actually says that they thought it was a ghost. Their first thought is not, this is Jesus who's been doing the miracles all around us. Their first thought is that Casper the friendly ghost is coming towards us. And if if being on the precipice of drowning wasn't bad enough, now all of a sudden you're being haunted by ghosts? This is a miserable moment for them. But then they get a shot of comfort. Because the ghost speaks, and it turns out it's not a ghost. They, fear, they hear the words of Jesus say to them in verse 20, It is I. Do not be afraid. And as they hear those words, they immediately recognize that this is Jesus, and it says they were glad to take him into the boat. Into the boat. And immediately... And somehow explicit, uh, inexplicably, it doesn't say how this happened, they were at land which they were going. Jesus performed some other, other miracle, they're at land. <laughs> you can imagine how intense that situation would be. The flip of emotions. How their emotions shift from terror and fear to joy and gladness. How their attention shifts from the cloud and the rains and the rain to Is Jesus who's now in the boat with them. And when you look at this text, you see that John is very deliberate in the way that he writes. You know, he writes the the shortest account of Jesus walking on the water. And he omits a lot of details. He omits Peter walking on the water, too. He omits a lot of things. And frankly, it doesn't even explicitly say that Jesus calms the storm. It's implied, but it doesn't even say it there. Because John is trying to get us to zero in on this one sentence here that Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. And this, these several, several, seven simple words reveal so much. They reveal a gentle trampling of the fears of the disciples As he he gives them the good news of not, I've fixed the storm, but I am here. And he gets in the boat with them. The degree to which Jesus harshly tramples the storm is the degree to which he gently emboldens the disciples by his presence. Not, Not focusing on the change of circumstances, but by offering his very presence. The fears are chased away as Jesus tramples on the waters. Now how did the disciples make sense of this? I mean you can just imagine the emotional whiplash from one second you are terrified and about to drown. The next second you see a ghost. The next second you're being like transported to the shore. You can imagine them sitting on the shore looking at each other and just being like what happened? What is going on? And, and, and you can imagine them sitting there looking at each other and as their heartbeat begins to drop below 100 beats a minute and as their mind starts racing, stops racing, what they start to realize is that Jesus didn't just do this rescue operation, but that Jesus and the way he went about it, he was, he was symbolic. He was dramatizing something for them. He was showing them something about who he is in the way that he rescued them and in the words that he used. So you can imagine John and Philip now with his empty stomach, like, talking about this. Like, what was this? And likely what they would have, the conclusions they would have come to is they would have recognized that Jesus, when he says, it is I, there's actually some wordplay going on. It's, it's literally, he's, Jesus is saying, I am. He's letting them know that he's here for them, but he's doing it in such a way that he's using the word, the name that God gave to himself in the Exodus. When, when God revealed himself to Moses and Moses saw the incredible presence of God, the emboldening presence of God, he said, I am. And when Jesus shows up, he says, I am. Signaling to them that the very God who delivered them, who delivered Israel out of the Red Sea, away from the Pharaoh, away from all that could terrify them, is the God who is fully present with them in that moment. And he's fully present through the body and the life of Jesus who's sitting there with them in the boat. And then they noticed that this happened on the sea. And the sea in those days was a metaphor for the chaos and disorder and basically evil and all that terrifies you. It's it's so much of a metaphor that later on in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when John, the same writer of the gospel, John, is trying to figure out a way to describe God's renewal of all creation. It says that the sea shall be no more. And it's not, he's not trying to say that God doesn't like the ocean, so he gets rid of it when he returns. What he's trying to say is the very things that terrified you, that the sea is symbolic of, God gets rid of it. And when you see Jesus walking on the sea, this is a move of authority and of power. He's not a hippie on a koi pond but he is planting his cleats in the water, showing that he is supreme over all the stuff that messes with us and terrifies us. They would conclude that Jesus, in that moment, he is trampling on death and disease and the sin that separates us from God. That he's not just trampling on the sea, but all that it represents, the idolatry and injustice and injury that haunt us. Jesus is the God who tramples on their fears as he tramples on the sea, leaving his cleat marks in the water and leaving them as people who are trembling. Not trembling because of the fear of the storm, but trembling because of the awe of Jesus. Only Jesus can trample our fears. Only Jesus could trample their fears and only Jesus can trample our fears. But we have different fears, right? Like Arizonans don't wake up in the morning and are suddenly afraid of like drowning later that day in the ocean, right? We're not afraid of storms because apparently we live in a state where it no longer rains, never. It's just rain is done. If you were afraid of storms, solved. We just don't have rain anymore. But we have different fears. We have different fears that are trampling So many of us. I spent much of my time this week meeting with people, talking to people as they're navigating their fears, praying, and my heart just breaks. I mean, there's the obvious low-hanging fruit of the pandemic and political unrest, but there are even deeper things that can torment us and seek to trample us even more. One thing that stands out is the, the fear of insignificance. I know that so many folks in this congregation have worked so hard in their careers with with really good motives of of trying to work for the glory of God and for the good of their neighbor. And they just keep running into wall after wall after wall. And you find yourself in a place where you're like, I didn't think I would be here right now. And I wonder if my life is just drifting into insignificance. If that's you, you need to hear Jesus say, it is I. Do not be afraid. I know that many of us are struggling with the fear of loneliness. If there's any group of people that my heart has just broken for uh, during this last year, it's uh, single folks who are living alone, who uh, desire companionship, a right desire. And now you step into a year where society says it's now immoral to even be in the presence of other people. And you sit in front of the glowing screen alone. You need to hear Jesus say to you, it is I, do not be afraid. I know that many of us too, when we we struggle with a fear for our children, you look across the kitchen table and you say, I would go through anything. If I could just know that they are going to be all right. You need to hear Jesus say to you, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, some of us act like we don't, we're not afraid of anything. We just stuff all of our fear and we're not afraid of anything. Is that anyone here? All right. So not only are you afraid, but you're also a liar. So, (laughs) um, but There, I'll give you some examples of that. A lot of times our fears actually are buried underneath our sin. If you think, I'm not afraid of anything, look at those areas of life where you are in sin and you just don't want to stop and you don't know why. For example, I know that there are folks who are struggling with uh, sexual sin, who reload and unload their their Tinder apps, and they're hooking up with folks. And you think it's just for pleasure, but underneath that is a fear of being alone or a fear that God is withholding something from you. I know that there are some of us who struggle with overworking and you can overlook your family or your friends or other things that are really important, your health. I'm in that boat. And you know if you're in that boat, there's a way to sanitize that, that, that sin um, by just being like, oh, I'm a hard worker. I have ambition. Yesterday was my Sabbath day where I'm supposed to be with my family. And I spent the entire day working, not because I needed to, but because there, I realized that there's a fear that sits underneath it. A few years ago, I realized that there's a fear that sits with me a lot if I'm paying attention. It's the fear that I'm gonna end up homeless. And uh, it's hard to explain, but as a kid, I had this like Lord of the Flies existence as I was a teenager where a bunch of teenagers were like living in one apartment together. And we came on the cusp of being homeless a couple of times. And that sticks with me. And it's always with me. And it's, it's so with me that I can almost always imagine a scenario where I end up homeless, no matter what my financial situation is. I'll tell you an example of it. There was a few weeks ago, I uh, choked on a corn tortilla chip. Has anyone ever choked on a corn tortilla chip? Excruciating. It's like one of the worst experiences that exist. I would rather be waterboarded than to have a chip (laughs) stuck in my throat. But here's the thing. Where did my mind go? Not how do I get the chip out of my throat. I immediately start thinking, oh no, this chip is gonna puncture my vocal cords. And then I won't be able to preach or teach or lead staff meetings or lead our staff, and I won't be able to be a pastor anymore. And then after that, I'm gonna have to go on disability, but it will have turned out, since I don't pay attention to forms very well, that I filled out the disability form incorrectly, and then I go to jail for fraud, and then my family is homeless. Like my mind goes there. And whether it's the real fears of things like pandemics and Uh, isolation, or it's these imaginary fears of tortilla chips propelling you into homelessness. We are a people who struggle with fear, and we need Jesus to step in, and we need to hear him say, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, I imagine that there's some folks here, maybe some folks who've even grown up in the church who would say, You know what? My whole life I've heard that in the Bible, there are a lot of times where it says, do not be afraid. That feels like a cliche to me. I know that there are folks who, uh, that those words, do not be afraid, have been pelted at you time and time again as a way of just saying, shut up. I don't want to hear about what you're afraid of. And you're probably saying, what does it really mean when Jesus says, do not be afraid? Is he saying to just stuff our emotions or to recklessly go around just sticking forks in sockets and, you know, driving with our eyes closed? Is it this carte blanche thing? Well, the reality is in Scripture, the most repeated command is fear not or some version of that. But often when that is taken away from its context and treated like some tweet that Jesus gave, we can tend to think of the Bible as saying, just suck it up. Stop whining. Just, you know, we, we tend to hear, we think that the Bible is saying, you know, things like, just do it. No fear. Do the do. Well, those are cheap corporate slogans that mean nothing. And those are not what Scripture is saying. What Scripture is saying, if you look in the context of those commands, the do not be afraid. It almost always comes with the reminder that it is the presence of God that allows us not to be afraid. When you are near him, when you encounter the real living God who created all things and loves you deeply and is moving towards you, that is what handles your fear. It's not even the change of circumstance. God doesn't promise that it's going to be all right in this life. That there will actually be hard things that we go through, but Jesus is with us. The disciples experienced this, that Jesus didn't just solve their problem from afar, but he actually steps in the boat with them. His presence is with them. And what's going to help us when we're in the oncologist office? Hearing that, yes, it is cancer is that Jesus is with you in that moment. When you're sitting behind the glowing screen and you have that fear of isolation and you wonder, am I going to be alone? Jesus is in the boat with you. When you're sitting at the restaurant and the tortilla trip goes down the wrong way, Jesus is with you. What helps us have courage is the presence of Jesus walking through the storm, walking through the danger and through the forest. You know, uh, Jake, one of the pastors here, I like him a lot, uh, but he thinks I really like to hang out with him. I do kind of like to hang out with him, but I really like to go camping and hiking with him. I actually really like Jake and hanging out with him. But here's the thing. There's a utility for why I always choose to hang out with Jake when I'm hiking, and not Warren when I hang out, when I go hiking. Warren saw a cat in the forest one time and thought it was a mountain lion. So, <laughs> true story. But Jake is like the MacGyver of the forest. Like, he knows how to do all of these little things. Like, he can start a fire with, like, rubbing his hands. And I, I literally watched him brush his teeth with, like, a pine tree once. And when you're in the forest with Jake, you know, you are not afraid. His presence, the fact that he knows what he's doing, enables you to not be afraid. But when I go camping alone, it's like any slight sound, I am convinced, is a bear. A bear that has somehow learned how to use a shotgun or something like that, and it's creeping up on my tent. The reality is, is that we have something greater than Jake. We have Christ who walks with us through the forest and through the storm. His presence emboldens us. What allows us to courageously walk through cancer? It's to walk through it with the one who's created every cell in our body and will one day renew it in the resurrection. What enables us to face the potential of rejection and failure? It's being in the boat with with the one, in the presence of the one who is shamefully crucified. The town square. We cannot trample our fears, but the presence of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus, He can push away our fears, and we experience something even greater than that. So the question isn't, how do I get rid of my fears? But the question is, how can I get more of God's presence? The question is. What does it look like to pursue the presence of Christ? Well, in this passage, we see Jesus doing the very thing. Jesus is up on the mountain, presumably praying and being alone with the Father. And that echoes the, word, the words and the wisdom of Scripture. Like in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, when Paul says this, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say, don't be anxious about anything and just leave it there. He says, don't be anxious, but rather shift your attention to the presence of God, who is always there, present with you, but you experience that presence through rhythms of prayer. He says, in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. And as we practice the presence of God through prayer, the peace of God is what guards our hearts and our minds, that brings us the peace in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the forest, in the midst of the chaos. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and we'll celebrate it. And one of the things that MLK said that is almost exactly like Philippians 4, but a little more beautiful and poetic because MLK did a better job with the poetry of his speech than Paul did. He says, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than being a living being without breathing. That prayer is like the the way that we experience God. That we breathe in the presence of God through prayer. And a lot of people, when they write and think about the civil rights movement, they talk about the strategy of it. But what they don't talk about is where did the courage come from? They don't talk about where did the courage come from when the fire hoses were turned on them? when they were being hit with batons, when there were dogs that were being released, when they were put in jail, where did the courage come from to persevere? And often what's overlooked is that there was usually a group of women leading the community in prayer. And they were practicing the presence of Christ. And as they got out in those dangerous streets, which were absolutely dangerous, the presence of Christ was there with them, Trampling their fears even as they themselves were being trampled. And what we see in that movement is an example of a church that we need to see today. An example of a church that isn't panicked, but is the the peaceful presence of Christ. The community of justice that stands in the center of a broken world. And they did it not through good strategy but by a community that sensed the presence of Christ among them through prayer. And so I know that there are probably some of you who say, that sounds great, but I don't even know where to start. There's a philosopher, a guy named Charles Taylor, who says that everything about our society is oriented around disenchantment. In other words, saying that it communicates to us that there is nothing beyond the physical, the material, just us. And that can make it hard to cultivate a life of prayer. And so if you're there and you're like, hey, I want to take some steps in that, let me just give you three steps. You don't have to do these, but these are three ways that you could um, step into a life of prayer, cultivate some prayer. So number one, prayer walks at Papago Park. It doesn't have to be Papago Park. But doing prayer walks in creation. uh, Every day, I start my day doing a prayer walk with my daughter at Papago Park. It's usually like 5 in the morning because she never sleeps. And then we f- I finish the day with a prayer walk at Papago Park as well. And there's something about getting into the beauty of creation and being silent with God and praying in that place uh, that is truly formative and reminds us that God is present here. I have no financial relationship with Papago Park, by the way. It's just, it's just a park. It's a good one. Number two, praying the psalms. John Crawford, he does a really good job of this. He's always praying through the psalms. This is really easy. Pick one psalm a day, and then just a couple times every day, return to that psalm. Read it, and let the words of the psalm become the words of your prayer, and guide the content of your prayers. third one would be to audit your worries. Scripture says that we are called to cast our care on Jesus. And cast our worries on Jesus because he cares for us. And, and, And a way to do this is very simple. At the end of the night, as you are feeling stuff that you don't know how to articulate, just take a journal and write down the fears and the worries that you're experiencing. And then just sit in the presence of Christ and let his presence trample on those fears. It's a gentle trampling, but is it a trampling nonetheless? And I would encourage you even to underneath it, after you've sat in the presence of Christ, just write, it is I, do not be afraid. So as we cultivate this life of prayer, this is our way of pursuing Jesus, but there is a more important way of pursuing Jesus, a more important question than how do we pursue Jesus. A more important thing that I wanna leave you with, and it is this, how does Jesus pursue us? I gave you some good practices, but I can't leave you just with good practices. I want to leave you with good news. Because ultimately, as much as you do these various practices and disciplines, it is not enough if Christ has not moved towards us, has not stepped in the boat. And so the question is, how has Jesus pursued us? How has Jesus pursued us? You might be saying, I know that Jesus was in the boat with the disciples, but how is he in the boat with me? I wasn't there that day. I know that he was moving toward the disciples on the water, but how do I know he's moving toward me? My friends, there is a greater miracle than what happened on the water that day. There is a greater miracle than Jesus walking on water, and it is the miracle of Jesus walking toward the cross. And if you need to be convinced that God is moving toward you, even in the midst of the chaos, we need to see him moving toward the cross not just as a a martyr, not just to do something nice, but when he's on the cross, he's defeating sin and Satan and death and all the things that are behind the things that seek to trample us. What we see on the cross is that Jesus tramples our fears by himself being trampled on our behalf. And rather than taking on the imprint of the cleats He was pierced by the nails that held him to the wooden beam. Rather than floating on a wooden boat, Jesus brings the wooden cross to say, this is something better. I am coming for you. I see you even in the midst of your storm. And as we are seen by Christ, we see that he is the one whose very presence is trampling on our fears. But I know that there are some who are in such heavy storms right now that you feel like, that's, that's, that's nice, Jim. That doesn't feel like good news to me. I am in a situation where it feels like it will never relent, and I am doomed. I'm going under. And I want to remind you that there was a moment when the disciples felt that same thing. There was a moment when they were on the boat, and it felt to them like Jesus was on vacation, that he wasn't present, and they were going to go down, and it all felt like a sham. But they did not know it, that as the, the, the boat was being filled with water, Jesus' feet were already on the water. He was already moving towards them, and it wasn't a matter of if, but when. And as they sunk their nails into the wood of that boat and they held on, Jesus was already moving towards them. And the same is true for us. We live in a time where it feels like there are a lot of storms. But Jesus is moving toward us, and it is not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. The day is coming when Jesus' feet will fully be on the water, where, where he will... Do away with the storms, and His fullness, the fullness of his presence will fill all of the earth. And as the fullness of the presence of Christ fills the earth, it will ultimately trample and cast away all of our fears. So let's pray.